who do you say that I am? That's an important question that Jesus asked his disciples in Matthew chapter 16. Peter responded, some say that you're Elijah, others say that you're John the Baptist. And Jesus asked again, but who do you say that I am? He says that you are the Christ, the son of the living God. For flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father is in heaven. Who is in heaven? That's what Jesus replied. Today we will look at our second testimony of the Messiah as we consider the encounter between the wise men and the Son of God. And as we will see, truly, flesh and blood did not reveal this to him, but the Father who is in heaven. The arrival of the Messiah King evokes a couple of different responses as the text will show us today. There are some who worship this Messiah who fall down at his face. And then there are others who discard the Messiah, who are either violent towards him or who are apathetic. Who do you say the Christ is? It's a question I want to have you ruminate in your mind as we walk through this passage of scripture. Are you counted among those who seek him? Because you either are or you aren't. Now, for most of us, what we know of the wise men is rooted in tradition. And my hope today, as we work through this text, is to scale back some of these presuppositions and point us to what the scripture says and how the narrative describes them so as to be encouraged by their part of the Advent story. My hope is that we would see even greater who Messiah is and what his earthly mission is. Now, many of us have seen a live nativity, and typically in those live nativities, the wise men are the most glorious part of that nativity. But that's not the case in the scriptures. The Messiah King is the most glorious part of the nativity. So the driving question in our text today is why is the testimony of the wise men a significant part of Christ's first advent. And we're going to look at three truths that the scripture provides for us today to answer that specific question. The first answer actually comes in verses 1 through 2, and it's this. Because their testimony reveals that King Jesus is worshipped by all nations. Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem, saying, Where is he who is born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it rose and have come to worship him. Now, first, I want us to see that Jesus has already been born. It says, Now, after Jesus was born in Bethlehem, and this was recorded in Matthew chapter 1, verses 18 through 25. Christ has been born in Bethlehem. This is the one who is fully God and fully man, as we talked about last week. And it says he was born in the days of Herod. Now, who is this King Herod? Well, history calls him Herod the Great, but as our text tells us, Herod was actually not so great at all. He was born in 73 BC. He was the son of Antipater, Udomene. And Udamin was the ruler of the chief of police. He was the chief of police for 
Rome as they dictated over Judea in that day. Now, Herod ultimately took his father's job once he had passed, and ultimately in 37 BC, Rome made Herod king of the Jews despite not naturally being a Jewish person. Herod is attributed to refurbishing the temple and was responsible for many building projects that can be seen around Jerusalem. But we don't know much about him other than what history tells us. And what history tells us is that he was a very cruel man, a very mean man. In fact, he was so mean and, and crippled by fear, in fact, that he would kill members of his family who he suspected were trying to usurp his authority, putting to death two of his sons, putting to death his favorite wife, uh, favorite, maybe indicating word there, and killed other members of his family as well. In fact, it was Caesar Augustus that once said he would rather be Herod's pig than Herod's son. Not viewed well by history and a very cruel man in nature. Now, now look what Matthew says right after uh, his description of Herod. He says, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem. That saying there, behold, means to listen up. And that's actually my hope, is that we would listen up and pay attention because that is what Matthew is wanting his readers to do forcing his readers to think intentionally about what it is he is saying. He wants to know, he wants us to know, that these, these wise men came from the east searching for Messiah. Look what these wise men asked. Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? Now, who are these guys? It might be helpful for us to just get a frame, framework of what we're working with here. These, these wise men... Or, or otherwise called magi. Uh, they're called magi, in fact, because their, their name in the original language is magos. Uh, and this is actually where we get our English word magic from. Uh, these guys weren't kings by biblical description, but these guys were intellectuals, philosophers, potentially even priests. And, and it says there in the text that they saw his star. Well, how is this possible? How do they know to be looking for the Messiah? Well, these guys were a crossover between astronomers who study the stars and astrologers who interpret the stars. They were both political in nature and they were also religious in nature and in their roles. In fact, they took religion very seriously and interpreted different sacred writings and the movements of creation, in particular the constellations, and they took scripture and the constellations, and then they aligned them together. That was how these men operated. Uh, more than likely, there was more than three of them. We often think there's three kings. We've all sang that song before. Typically, that's attributed to the amount of gifts that are listed later on in our passage. But more than likely, there was many of them entourages of men who were coming to seek this Messiah that they had been pursuing, for they saw his star. Now, a little context clue from the scripture there is it 
is it, uh, is it says that they are from the east. And that's an important indicator for where they're coming to Jerusalem from. The common thought from scholars is that these men are either from Babylon or from Persia, especially since their gifts are fitting, as well as these cultures had divination and astrology practiced within them. Now, what we do know, but we don't know for sure where they're from. The, the text really never tells us. But what we do suspect is that these magi were also acquainted with the sacred text. They, they had some inkling of Jewish messianic prophecies that they were looking for. So they were looking in the sky, and then they're also trying to interpret the sky based on what had been given to them. Now, one possible consideration as to how they could have gotten these scriptural teachings was that exiles from the Jewish exile uh, were still prevalent in places like Babylon and Persia. And, and so what you have is these teachings that would have been passed down from the cultures uh, previously. And if they were men of learned wisdom, they would have been seeking and searching and studying all that had been passed down. But one example that we have is from Daniel chapter 2, where we see that the prophet Daniel was actually put as chief of the Magi while he was in Babylon. And, and, and Daniel was revered and respected. And it's custom to believe that many of Daniel's prophecies and his understanding of Israel's kings were passed down in the ancient Near East. Uh, he would have um, had access, obviously, to the book of Isaiah, which means these magi could have had access to books like the book of Isaiah, which prophesies that a son will be born of a virgin in chapter 7, and that one will rule and the governments will sit upon his shoulders in chapter 9. Uh, he could have, they, these magi could have had access to the law, where uh, we find obscure passages, or what feel like obscure passages, like in Numbers chapter 24, the prophecy of Balaam, which says that a star is going to be coming out of Jacob. We don't know specifically how, but we assume that these men had some form of biblical prophecy, alliteration to biblical prophecy in their studies. So when they saw the star rose, they called it his star. And then the intent is also revealed there. They had come to worship him. That's why they had made the journey. If they were from Persia, they had traveled some 1,500 miles. If they were from Babylon, they had traveled 750. They had come a long way, and the reason that they had come was to worship the sun. Now, these men were pagans. They, they, they were not Jews, but Gentile sinners. What a powerful move of God in their hearts for these wise men, respected, privileged men in their societies to leave home and country seeking the king of the Jews. David Mathis, who is a director uh, at Desiring God, wrote this of these wise men. Gandalf and Dumbledore are coming to worship the baby Jesus. This is astounding that God is welcoming the Magi and not on the provision that they first abandoned their life of astrology and magic. No, he comes to them where they are in their sin. He goes as far as to exploit their very channel of their deepest idolatry, which would be the stars, to draw them to Jesus. 
Is that not what Christ does? How many of us can say we've been searching for so many things and in the middle of it, we've intersected with the living God? It's exactly what has happened here with these magi. And I don't want us to miss how Matthew, who is a a Jewish man writing to Jewish people, starts out his gospel account in chapter 2, pointing to how the nations came far away to worship the Messiah King. I, I don't want that to be lost on us at all. These are foreigners. Yes, intrigued by wisdom, but very eclectic. But by God's grace, he pointed them to the Messiah. Beloved, are you seeking the Messiah? Do, do, you, do you find the Messiah as profound as these men found the Messiah? They recognized in their older age their need for one who would be able to save them. One who had come to be the king of the Jews. You could ask the question this way, are, are you a wise man from the east? If you remember from the garden account, we were banished from the garden from the east. Sent to the east, the wise man comes back to the second Adam, seeking the one who can bring him back into fellowship with God. Is that you today? Are you looking for the Messiah, seeking him? Have you found him and have you forgotten him? Beloved, our God has sought us first, just as he did these wise men. And even when we stop seeking him, he is gracious to allow us to seek him again. And that is the hope of Christmas. Beloved, uh, do you welcome others to Christ who seem strange to you? These guys are strange. Gandalfs coming to see the Messiah. I think so often we have a tendency to be stiff towards sinners, angry at those who appear different than us. Beloved, many people are searching. They might just not know it yet. Chesterton is attributed with a quote that says, every man who knocks on a brothel is subconsciously looking for God. All men are looking. Are are, are we opening up our hearts to those who might look different, recognizing that the Messiah can save them just as he can save us and has saved us? Have you left room in your heart for this type of work? Do you see from just these first two verses that God wields the universe to make his son known and worshiped. Do you see that the constellations are aligning and pointing to the one, drawing people to him? If this is important to the father who's in heaven, beloved, it must be and ought to be important to us. This is the great goal in all things, that the son would be made known to all the nations. And just in these first two verses, we can see some profound Things Because the covenants that were made to Abraham, chapter 12 of Genesis, chapter 15 of Genesis, talk of one who will be a blessing to the nations. And the blessing has come. Why else is the testimony of the wise men significant as we consider Christ's first advent? Well, we also see in verses 3 through 8, the second answer to the question, that their testimony reveals that not many will worship King Jesus. In fact, many will reject King Jesus. Verse 3, when Herod the king heard this, he was troubled 
and all Jerusalem with him. And assembling all the chief priests and scribes of the people, he inquired of them where the Christ was to be born. And they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Then Herod summoned the wise men secretly and ascertained from them what time the star had appeared. And he sent the uh, and he sent them to Bethlehem, saying, Go and search diligently for the child, and when you have found him, bring me word that I too may go and worship him. Now when Herod heard this, it says there in verse 3 that he was deeply disturbed or deeply troubled in the language. These magi are coming, and he was rocked to his core. A ruling king who speaks directives over people and they do whatever he wants is afraid and terrified in this moment. And this is the conflict of the narrative, that a king who has uh, usurped or, or, or sat in a throne that he's actually not qualified for is all of a sudden afraid of a little baby who has been born. And this is just kind of pointing us to the conflict that Christ always has to the earthly kings who did not yield to him. I'd encourage you to go read Psalm 2 later on today to read more about that. These magi are looking for the king of the Jews. They're just not looking for Herod. And look what it says there. All of Jerusalem, not just Herod, but all of Jerusalem was troubled. Now, we're not entirely sure what encompasses all of Jerusalem. Maybe it's the leaders who knew of the Magi's inquiry. Uh, maybe they were afraid of how uh, Herod was going to respond, or maybe uh, they too rejected the idea that a savior was going to be born. My personal guess is they were troubled because they were afraid of how Herod was going to respond given his history and his actions. Now notice Herod's first response there in verse four. He assembles all the religious leaders together. He calls the Sanhedrin and more. He, he, he calls the scribes, the teachers, the Pharisees. He calls the priests who would have been the Sadducees. And he asks them, where is this Christ to be born? First, that shows us that he knew of the prophecy on some level. Maybe he learned it from the inquiry of the Magi. But what it actually shows us is he did not know the prophecy himself. He did not have God's word hidden in his heart. It actually also shows us that he's afraid of the Magi. On some level, he, he believes that they're coming to see one who is to be born or who has been born. And so we see a lot from these, this little response. He doesn't know much about the scriptures, if anything at all, and that he actually believes the astrologers who have come to check on this child. Astrology actually had uh, quite a bit of respect in that current culture in that day. That's why he brings the theologians to his table. How am I to interpret this? These men have come from so far. What am I to do with this? Now look how the religious teachers respond. It says in verse five, they told him in Bethlehem of Judea, for so it is written by the prophet referring to Micah, and you, O Bethlehem, in the land of Judah, 
are by no means least among the rulers of Judah, for from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. So Herod wants the details. He calls the religious people to his side, and the religious people let them know that a prophecy has been made from the book of Micah, the prophet Micah. And it says that he's going to be born in Bethlehem. Micah chapter 5, verse 2. And in fact, the very last part of that prophecy ties in 2 Samuel chapter 5, verse 2. Notice what Matthew emphasizes, that that Bethlehem is by no means least among the rulers of Judah. He's saying it might be a small town, but something significant is coming from Bethlehem yet again. Jesus was promised to be born in the city of David. This is the same city that David was born in. But this prophecy is not referring to David because Micah was written 500 years after King David and it was written 500 years prior to the birth of Jesus Christ. And look what the prophecy says specifically about the one who is going to be born, that he is going to be a ruler. For from you shall come a ruler who will shepherd my people Israel. Essentially, he's saying that he's going to be a ruler of rulers. That though a small town, not insignificant, because a significant ruler is coming from him who is going to rule over all people. And that's not determined by Rome. That's not determined by Caesar. Uh, Herod doesn't get to keep his grasp on the throne a day longer than God's sovereign will. He is saying that one is coming and one, in fact, has come. And then he says from 2 Samuel chapter 5 that this ruler will shepherd my people Israel. So he's, he's, he's like David, but he's greater than David because he's going to rule all the nations. He rules and he serves. So he doesn't rule to be served like Herod. He rules and he serves. This is the character of the one who has come. Now, given that this is from Micah chapter 5 verse 2, I want us to hear how Micah describes this shepherd in verse 4 of the same passage. Back in chapter 2, I have it up there on the screens for you. He says this of this Messiah to be born of Bethlehem. And he shall stand and shepherd his flock in the strength of the Lord, in the majesty of the name of the Lord his God. And they shall dwell secure, for now he shall be great to the ends of the earth, and he shall be their peace. What a beautiful description of the king shepherd that he is going to shepherd from the strength of the Lord because he is the Lord, which means he's always and perfectly going to shepherd his people. He's going to shepherd his people in the name of the Lord, the majestic name of the Lord, which means according to the character of God, the perfect, flawless character of God is the way that he is always going to shepherd his people Israel. And then he's also going to shepherd them with everlasting peace. And look where he describes his people. To the ends of the earth. The people from every tribe, nation, and tongue are going to be qualified to be shepherded by the good shepherd. 
What a blessed prophecy from Micah that we have received. Now notice Herod's second response there in verse 7. He secretly assembles the magi. So he first assembles the teachers in verse 4, and now he assembles the magi in secret. Herod's secrecy and his cunning reveal his deception. This is the heart of Herod on display here. He, he shows interest in the child there in verse 7 so that he too can worship him. And, and he ascertains information out of the Magi so he knows when he was born, uh, you know, what he's like. And what we see later on in the narrative is Herod's actual desire for the child, which is ultimately to destroy the child, not to worship the child. This is ultimately, he wants to know who he is so he can control the situation like Herod often does. And look what he says there in verse 8. And after he met with the Magi and ascertained information, he sent them to Bethlehem saying, go and search diligently for the child. So he, he asked the Magi for help and he sends them to Bethlehem. And that probably means that he's providing information to the Magi that they didn't already know. Remember, the star had brought them to Jerusalem where Herod is so that God could sovereignly have them interact. But it's Herod who sends the Magi to Bethlehem. And he tells them to go and search diligently. That means very carefully for this child. There in verse 8, it says, And when you have found him, bring me word that I too may come and worship the child. What deception. He acts like he wants to join in their worship. And he fakes agreement with them just so he can know where this child is. Beloved, what Herod provides us is a sample of what carnal man looks like versus a holy God. If you remember in Colossians 1, we've been redeemed by the blood of Christ, but we were previously at enmity with God. Well, this is what enmity looks like from the scriptures. A man who wants to destroy one who is threatening the very throne that Christ is worthy to sit on. Beloved, I don't want us to be fooled into thinking that we naturally are any different than Herod. We are no different. We just have never been given the authority and the power that Herod was given. But this is an example of what it looks like for carnal man to be against enmity against the holy God. I also want us to see that knowing the scriptures doesn't equate to seeking God. These religious leaders knew the word. They knew to go to Micah chapter 5 verse 2. They told Herod what he wanted to know. Where's this Messiah going to be born? Yet it doesn't seem from the text that they really care that a Messiah is going to be born. Religiosity tradition, fear of man, whatever is driving these, these religious teachers is a threat to your true worship. It's a threat to any man's true worship. Take your soul to task. Do you know a lot about the scriptures? Or are you listening and learning and sitting on the content of the scriptures that find their yes in Christ? Because these guys just passed right over it. I also want us to see in verses three through eight, the boldness of these wise men to proclaim the Messiah. Consider that they went to the king of, of the Jews asking about the king of the Jews. 
They did not fear him. They, they knew of Herod, no doubt. His, his shenanigans had spread far beyond the boundaries of Israel. And yet they did not come afraid of what Herod could do to them, but asking, hey, you're the king of the Jews. Where is the promised Messiah to be born? What boldness, what faithfulness. Finally, the testimony of these wise men is significant because we see what proper worship looks like, verses nine through 12. Their testimony reveals how joy fuels worship of King Jesus. Verse nine, after listening to the king, they went on their way and behold the star that they had seen when it rose went before them until it came to rest over the place where the child was. And when they saw the star, they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. So after they had met with Herod and Herod had sent them, look what Matthew says. He says, behold, again, listen up. Listen to what happened next in the story. The star that had been leading them to this point led them further into Bethlehem. Now, we don't know much about this star. Uh, some theologians have tried to make sense of it by saying it was a comet or planets were aligning. or We simply don't know. That's certainly a possibility. It could be something like Exodus chapter 13, where a, a pillar of fire by night is leading Israel, or a pillar of, of cloud by uh, day is leading Israel to, to the next place that God would have them go. We do know that it's miraculous. We know that it's significant. And when they saw the star, look at how the wise men respond. They give three responses. This is the first one in verse 10. They rejoiced exceedingly with great joy exceedingly with great joy. Now, John Piper calls this quadruple rejoicing. He says, it would have been a lot to say that they rejoiced. It would have been a lot to say that they rejoiced with joy. It would have been another thing to say that they rejoiced with great joy, but even more to say that they rejoiced exceedingly with great joy. Joy to the fourth power is the type of joy that these men had when they saw the star and it was leading them to the Messiah. Why did they have this joy? Why did they have this joy? Because they were going to meet the Messiah. They were going to meet the one whom their soul longed for. Now, did these wise men know everything about Jesus? I highly doubt it. Guys, we have a better view in some regard than they did because we get the fuller story now, they got front row for a second. <laughs> they got to see Emmanuel in the flesh. But they didn't know all the works that we know about Emmanuel. Yet they exceedingly rejoiced with great joy. Like a, a father who has just seen his wife give birth to a new son. He runs down the hall. He is so happy, exceeding with great joy. Except this baby is different than all the other babies. They knew that this baby was different. Now, I want us to see in verse 11, a context clue that's provided there. It says, and going into the house, talking about the wise men, that naturally helps us to see that this probably wasn't done in a stable, uh, like all of our nativities at home suggest. Uh, it's, uh, we see that uh, the child is 
named a child and who was with his mother Mary there in verse 11. More than likely, Jesus is a few months old to somewhere like the age of two when these guys had come. And in verse 11, we see the wise men's second response after their joyous response of the star, their second response is when they saw the child who was with their mother Mary, with his mother Mary, the scripture says they fell down and they worshiped him. Their joy was fueled in their worship. They fell on their faces before the child. Their foreheads were touching the ground, prostrate before this king who was before them. Oftentimes when we worship God, we lift our hands and we do that because of the joy that's in our heart. But beloved, when we are in the presence of the living God, this is probably more like the response that is going to be given where we fall down and we worship the king just as these magi did. It says in Philippians 2 that when Christ returns, the whole world will see his return and every knee will bow and every tongue will confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. So they're overjoyed that they get to meet the Messiah. And when they see him, they fall down and they worship him. This is the attitude of a heart that rep recognizes that they are in the presence of a divine king. The only divine king. This is not how Herod was received. And then we see the wise men's third response. After they had given themselves into worship, the scriptures say, in opening their treasures, they offered him gifts gold, frankincense, and myrrh. So they rejoiced with exceeding joy, they worshiped him, and then they sacrificed their gifts to this Messiah. They opened their treasure troves that they had carried for a thousand miles, and they said that these belonged to you. No doubt, by the way, was this provision for the family who would soon go into exile into Egypt because Herod was trying to kill baby Jesus. And yet God had made provision for them while they were away. The acts of giving and worship show their sincere heart of joy and gratitude to this newborn king. Guys, the Magi understood that Christ is the treasure. The Magi understood exactly what Paul said in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, that the church is able now to give because of the inexpressible gift that we have received in Christ. The Magi got this. And this is the hope of the church. We understand the gift that we have received in Christ and we give back accordingly. And notice that they gave the best that they had. They gave gold and frankincense and myrrh. This really was a royal scene. People laid out before him giving their most expensive treasures. Now church history has tried to make much of the meaning of these three gifts. Right, uh, gold signifying royalty, frankincense uh, is said to be uh, the, the sense that was burnt in the temple while priests were ministering. Myrrh is a spice used to treat and embalm bodies that are dead, pointing to the sacrifice and the suffering of the Messiah. Those all might be true. I don't know, the text doesn't tell us. But the text does tell us certain things about these gifts that God has received. All kings will fall down and pay homage and give gifts to the king. And it says that in Psalm 90, uh, excuse me, Psalm 72. 
says that the nations will rejoice and bring gold and frankincense. That says that in Isaiah chapter 60. We see even a shadow of this when the queen of, she of Sheba brought gold and spices to the son of David, who is Solomon, in 2 Kings chapter 10. The point is this. The word prophesied that the nations would bring their very best to the Messiah. And that is what's happening right here in the passage. In fact, it's Isaiah chapter 60, verse 3, that the nations will come to your light and the riches of the nations will come. Beloved, do you give your best to Christ? Do, do you offer your very best to the Lord? Yes, I'm, I'm, I'm talking in some sense about your resources. I am. Because these were their resources. But, but I'm talking about much more than just resources. Talking about time, your, your skills, your relationships, your affections, all of this was sweat equity that these men had put in. They left their families. They used their skills to get there. They gave their greatest treasures because they found Christ worth it. Beloved, do you find Christ worth it? Have you ever looked at your life in the inventory of all that God has given you and said, Lord, these belong to you? You are worthy to receive them, even though you have given these things to me. And after they had worshiped the son and, and given their provisions back to the king, look how God provides for them in verse 12. And being warned in a dream not to return to Herod, they departed to their own country by another way. God graciously cares for and, 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 and provides for those who belong to him those who come from afar to worship his son. God, God gave them a dream and they were warned not to go back to Herod, which both spared their life and it also spared the life of the Messiah. I don't want us to miss the provision of God in this text. There's a few ways to respond to this today, really three big ways, and then we'll look at a couple of considerations in closing. Some men are like Herod confronted by Christ and hate him, despise him, want nothing to do with him. Some men are confronted by Christ and are apathetic. The Messiah is not even on the radar, just like these religious teachers. Other men have an encounter with Christ and they fall down and they worship him. Which are you? Which are you? Ask yourself, what is the fruit of my answer? How can I discern what is actually true in my life? A couple of things to consider for us today, just in closing before we take the table. One, I want us to consider how the father views his son as worthy to be praised by all nations. This is quite significant that he is the king of the Jews as the Magi were looking for. Yet it was the nations who were coming to look for the king of the Jews. And this was prophesied. You take prophecies like Malachi chapter three, that the nations would call him blessed. Uh, it is Psalm 67, that there's a, a remnant of faithful Israel that's salvaged and saved by God so that the nations would praise his name. This is the plan of the father from long ago that the son would be the very center of all authority 
and the very center of the story and worthy to be praised. Number two, consider how the gospel is still for the nations because the Christ is still the king of the nations. In fact, he was born here. He was God. He put on flesh and he was born a king. But his coronation later happened when he ascended to the right hand of the father, ruling, as he said, all authority in heaven on earth has been given to me. At the very beginning of the gospel of Matthew, we see this come and see the king. Come from afar and see that the king is here, like we see right now. But by the end of the book, we see that it's a go and tell. That's what the great commission is in Matthew chapter 28. So this unbelievable force of God's work, bringing the nations to him through the scriptures and the star working together to display who his son is, pointing to the, who the Messiah is, bringing everyone together through the perfect life, death, burial, and resurrection of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension. Ultimately, the message to the church now is to go and to tell of all that God has done. That's why I'm so excited about getting into the book of Acts in 2024. Is this your worldview? That God just brings it all in and then he explodes us out to go and tell of the king who has come. Um, number three, I want you to consider God's provision. Is it not God's provision that allowed all of this to happen? Interest and knowledge of the, ma the Magi had. God provided the star. God provided the savior. God provided the dream. I don't want us in any way to lift up these Magi as spectacular men. They were ordinary men moved by the power of God through his grace to show them who the Messiah was. God has provided all of this in this text, just as he's provided for each of us. Number four, consider the obedient response of the Magi. I hope we were obedient like the Magi are. They followed the star, going against common sense, right? They listened to the dream. They considered the prophecies. They considered the scriptures that said he was born in Bethlehem. They did everything that God would have them do. Thomas Watson, great pastor, said, angels don't do anything except what God has commanded, uh, what, except what is commanded by God. What, what, what if we just put the church? The church doesn't do anything except what is commanded by God. I hope we're like the magi in this way. Consider what God has done, consider what God has said, and we simply obey. Consider the Magi's worship. They left everything because they found Christ worthy. Everything. The bank account, they gave it away. They said goodbye to the glory that was in their home country so that they could see and get their eyes on the one who came to save. What a beautiful example for, for us. And then finally, consider God's victory over evil. Even in this passage, we get a hint of how God is going to be victorious over evil. He didn't let Herod touch a hair on those magi's head. And nor did Herod get to touch a hair on the head of the Messiah. Herod never even got to look. Ultimately, this points us to a greater victory. This is a, a greater David and Goliath story. 
Ultimately, it shows us that, that Jesus is going to perfectly and finally defeat sin, even the greater enemy. We see so much in God's provision and victory over evil from this passage. I hope you store these things in your heart this Christmas season. We're no different than the Magi who have been far away and then brought near because of the grace of God. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your provision and your grace revealed in this story. Father, you let the nations know, you let the nations know of the Messiah. And the Messiah, through his perfect work, Father, has restored us back to you so that we're not always exiles from, from you, Father. We're, we're brought back from the east to you. Father, I pray that we would worship the Christ because of this that we would give all that we have, our time, our resources, our talents for the glory of your name. If the Magi thought Jesus was worth it, Father, we have no reason to believe he's not worth it. God, open up our minds to understand this truth. We pray all of this in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ himself, who is our good shepherd. Amen.